but just by having that go and having someone like her tell you that those things are achievable and hear her story really inspired me and I, I worked hard from there. But I had to say, no, no, thank you. That was um, what I needed to be told. So, yeah. I loved my basketball so much and I deep down knew that I didn't feel that good on the basketball court. Like my knees were starting to hurt running around because I'd put on a bit of extra weight. So I thought I'd enjoy it more if I did manage to lose the weight. Hello and welcome to the Inspirational Leaders podcast series. I'm your host, Sean McCambridge. Every episode, we unpack the inspirational stories that made our guests the leaders they are today. So I really hope you enjoy. Thanks again for tuning in. Right, guys, uh, we're super lucky here to have Susie Bates join us from sunny Dunedin. Uh, she shares uh, a lot of inspirational takeaways from her journey. There's no doubt she's a really inspirational individual that's achieved some great stuff. So I've got no doubt that we will see great, uh, simple uh, takeaways for you guys listening today. So without further ado, uh, tune in today's podcast. I hope you really enjoyed it. I've got no doubt that you will. And don't forget to share the podcast or subscribe to the podcast for those you think will benefit from it. Uh, but thanks again for listening and I hope you really enjoyed today. Thank you. Well, Susie, thanks for uh, joining us here today. Uh, actually, joining us from my hometown and your hometown in uh, sunny Dunedin. I guess I'm I'm pretty pumped for a couple of reasons to catch up with you today. I mean, there's no doubt your story's an incredible one, but uh, I guess on another front, as a father of a daughter, um, I guess I'm really uh, keen to sort of inspire her to go on and achieve great things and, and I spoke to her this morning about the fact that I'm speaking to you and what you've achieved and her eyes lit up and I think that's I think that's really cool and I think the work that you're doing and other people are doing in that regard are really sort of paving the way so um, thanks for that and, and, and looking forward to sort of having a bit of a chat so I'll give the listeners a bit of an intro um, and uh, just to give a, a bit of a backstory on and who you are so we're speaking with Susie Bates for those of you guys that don't know Susie She's a multiple award winner of the International Woman Cricketer of the Year. Uh, she's a white fern cricketer. She's an Olympian, former New Zealand and professional basketball player, and amongst many other awards, uh, you won the 2018 uh, Guardian, named you as the second best cricketer in the world, which is phenomenal. And I guess if you if you put your humbleness aside, and, and no doubt uh, aspects of that make you feel uncomfortable, but... How, do, how does the uh, first question is, how does that sort of make you feel when you hear all those amazing accolades next to your name? Uh, yeah, firstly, thanks for having me. Um, it's pretty cool to be asked to do something like this, so I'm excited about having a chat. But, yeah, I think um, for me sometimes I sort of have to pinch myself. When you look back, you get so caught up in what you're doing and trying to be better. But when you hear it like that, yeah, it just makes me feel pretty proud and just really grateful that um, I've been able to have these opportunities and I guess with cricket play at a, a phase where um, women's cricket's become professional and I've been able to keep playing and make the most of the opportunities. Yeah, no, well, uh, you're certainly making the most of them. Um, I want to I wanna turn the conversation to a fairly serious question. This is probably the serious, uh, most serious question of the day um, and I've got some experience with this one because I turned my sister... Renee, who you played with, into a bit of a bowling machine in backyard cricket back in the day in Dunedin. She bowled countless overs to me. Um, but I want to ask you, you know, obviously you grew up in a family of six, mum, dad, 
obviously older brothers, Tom Henry and younger sister, Olivia. Uh, talk us through some of the epic uh, backyard cricket games and, and did the boys ever give you a bat and <laughs> how intense were some of those backyard battles? <laughs> yeah, those are um, my first memories of cricket and, um, yeah, especially Tom and Henry, but um, in particular I remember Tom um, having a few battles and he just batted all, all day and all nice and, he would allow me to bowl even closer because I wasn't quick enough. So I'd be charging <laughs> in um, and getting probably about three metres away and still couldn't get him out. And, you know, he'd score 100 and then we'd get called in for dinner. So I um, I blame him for perhaps me wanting to get on with things with the bat and, you know, not having much patience because when I got a bat, I knew it wasn't going to be for long. <laughs> and uh, when you did ultimately get in there, can you recall any of your top scores? Sounds like Tom uh, raised the bat once or twice but what about you how'd you go <laughs> yeah I think I just remember like <laughs> whether it was just Tom and Henry or sometimes um they had their friends over I remember Matthew Harvey who played a bit of um first class cricket for Otago he had come around and I just wanted to prove to those guys that I could you know sort of play and compete with them but um I can't remember any you know exact scores but what I do remember is part of our backyard it was more of a pathway but you had to um play a late cut behind point to miss the house and that's where you could get your boundaries and uh that's one of my go-to shots so i sort of am a big believer in um you know the environment that you learn to play and that's kind of my most instinctive shot and that's come from backyard cricket because if you hit the house then um, there was no run uh, that's good well i mean well and that's an awesome uh segue into the next question and uh, really interested in the environment that you grew up and obviously the as we touched on, there's a lot of competition amongst your uh, fellow siblings, um, but obviously you come from a very high-achieving family. Um, my understanding is uh, both your mum and dad have been very, very successful in law uh, in different regards, and, and obviously you know the upbringing that you had with your your fellow siblings and your parents perhaps set the scene for where you are today. So as you sort of look back on that, you know, what do you think it was about that environment that helped maybe set a platform to to where you are today? Yeah, um, it was actually, I think, how we all started our sporting careers was in tennis and um, our dad was a, a tennis coach. He'd played a lot of tennis growing up and he got into some coaching before he had to get a serious job that looked after four kids with his law. But, um, yeah, we all started in tennis and played at various age group tournaments and we all worked with um, Neil Carter, who was the tennis coach in Dunedin at the time and um, I remember going to trainings and he took it pretty seriously. He was one of the most competitive um, you know, people that I'd had anything to do with and he had this saying that um, go hard or go home and I always remember that like if we were going to go to training he wanted us to play pretty hard and unfortunately for dad he probably spent quite a bit of money in all of us playing tennis but None of us kicked on in that because I think we all enjoyed the team sports too much. But, yeah, I think that sort of started the competition and me wanting to be as good at tennis as I could be. And then, like I said, I just always um, played with my brothers or I played in boys' team. And I think probably how I became so competitive was I always felt like I was trying to prove myself to my brothers or the boys I was playing with that I was good enough and a way for me to be accepted in those teams was to you know win or compete or show off my skills so I think that sort of is the reason why I became so competitive. 
Uh, it sounds like that competitive aspect was a real catalyst to sort of seeking to get better and improve yourself and grow and develop. So that obviously transcends into, no doubt, uh, making your first-class debut at 15, which is remarkable. Obviously, uh, you then went on to uh, make your debut for New Zealand in cricket at 18, become an Olympian in a totally different sport in basketball uh, at 20 uh, at the Beijing, uh, Beijing Olympics, which is amazing. Um, I also believe that you had uh, scholarship opportunities to go over and play college basketball. I guess this is no doubt a, a cliche question and one that you've answered a thousand times, but I, I guess I'm keen to understand what was the decision-making process of the path that you've ultimately taken versus the one that could have or might have been. Can you sort of share any insights in terms of that decision-making process? Yeah, look, it could have um, gone either way quite easily. And I, you know, the Tiger Girls High School, I, I played every sport. I loved volleyball. I loved touch rugby and, you know, I played cricket and basketball there too. Um, and looked right the way through. I probably at high school like loved my basketball more than my cricket. There was um, a lot of opportunities and I had a lot of close friends playing basketball. So I was probably more passionate about basketball at high school. And then I think playing for the Sparks and um, playing with, you know, a lot older girls, I really enjoyed that experience and that sort of sucked me into cricket and um, then at 18 when I got picked for the White Fins for the first time I was very close to um, heading over to the US to take up a basketball scholarship and I believe that at the time Steve Jenkins who was the White Fins coach had sort of heard that I may be interested in heading over to America so perhaps picked me a little bit sooner than I was ready to make sure that I didn't get on a plane to America and um, I guess not play cricket for a while so he's probably a massive reason why my career's headed this way because as soon as I played my first game for the White Ferns I, I didn't want to miss a game I just absolutely loved competing at that level and that sort of stopped my I guess my hoop dreams and I was pretty serious about my cricket although I kept playing basketball for a while after that. And at what stage did it become apparent that uh, we were talking about earlier before we sort of went uh into the podcast, but at what stage did it become obvious that it's just uh, it's just not uh, plausible to sort of do the two concurrent in today's day and age with the commitments you've got to make? Was there a sort of time when you really had to say, right, uh, I've got to double down on one versus two? Yeah, I think that's um, where I'm, I've been really lucky in that it wasn't professional when I was growing up, so you could do whatever you liked really as long as you were playing well enough to get picked. There were no contracts, so I was able to play basketball for New Zealand probably up until 2014 so um, I was doing both although it got pretty tough with trying to manage the schedules and I was studying at Otago University and it caused a little bit of stress at the time when there was exams and all sorts of things going on but yeah it wasn't actually until um, Gary Stead was coaching the White Ferns and our former captain um, Amy Mason had retired and he asked me if I'd like to captain the White Ferns and I sort of realised at that time that if I was going to say yes to the captaincy that I had to make cricket the priority, um, that was the way I sort of wanted to lead and it took me a few weeks to make sure that that was what I really wanted to do but once I accepted the captaincy I've never really looked back and although I've dabbled in basketball it's never been too serious since. 
Right, uh, a bit of a light-hearted question now, and uh, the sort of the origins of this question come a little bit from my sis, and I'll explain why. But uh, I guess I'm keen to understand if you have any superstitions or rituals on on game day to be at your best. And uh, speaking to Renee beforehand, she said your signature back in the day was the pigtails. Everywhere you've seen uh, Susie, you've seen the pigtails. So I guess I want to understand: was there anything in that? Um, was that part of your superstitions, or was that just uh, a random fact? <laughs> it's always dangerous when I've had someone um, play with me when I was a bit younger because, yeah, the old pigtails. I was um, infamously known for the pigtail girl, and I really don't even know how they lasted so long. But um, obviously, my mum, Jo, when I was younger, um, loved to put my hair in pigtails, and yeah, I've sort of tried to look back and wonder why, but I think it was a little bit, I got so used to them and I didn't like drawing attention to myself. So by once I'd worn them for so long, by changing my hairstyle, I thought, you know, I was going to draw a bit more attention. So they lasted for a very long time. And, um, you know, I always wore my hair in pigtails, played cricket um, with them, which meant sometimes I couldn't wear a hat, which wasn't very sun smart. Um, <laughs> and yet it wasn't until one of the sparks, um, weekends away so I would have been 15 or 16 so they lasted a very long time um and one of the sparks weekends away we played in Auckland and then Hamilton the next day and it was probably about 30 degrees and I got severe heat stroke um (laughs) and so the next day in Hamilton um the coach Jeff Rodden um at the time wouldn't let me go out onto the field unless I wore a hat So I had to put my hair in a ponytail and run out onto the field. And once I'd made that change, I realised that that was probably for the best and I finally got rid of them. (laughs) No, there you go. So, uh, and no no other sort of uh, quirky routines or things that have sort of just been a consistent uh, element of your preparation or or the part you've done sort of pre or, or sort of during games? Um, not, not really. I sort of, um, you know, I have my favourite bike shorts that I always make sure I have or, um, you know, I used to have peanut butter and banana on toast pretty much before each game. But now with travelling so much and not always being able to control those things, I've learnt to let go of a lot of the superstitions because I realised it just used to make me more anxious if I didn't do them. So I've tried to be a lot more relaxed about those things and, yeah, even with hitting balls before the game and things, I I like to mix it up because once you've been playing for a long time, um, you can sort of just go through the motions rather than actually doing something to prepare yourself. No, I think some great insights there, uh, which are really, really good. Um, now, obviously, I was a little bit late to my catch-up today because I was speaking to uh, to Nath McCallum, further to my sister, in terms of doing a bit of homework. But uh, I'm going to have to ask you to, to put a little bit of humbleness aside. And and both Nathan and, and my sister said there's obviously no doubt that you're a talented person. But I think the thing that shone through with both of them was, uh, you know, they both described you as a, as a team and, and culture person first. Super humble, someone with a, a great work ethic and someone that's incredibly likable um, and uh, I guess uh, that they both sort of made the comment that it would be hard to imagine anyone not liking you so I think congratulations firstly on that but uh, I guess I want to ask you did that character always exist or is that something that you've consciously gone about seeking to evolve over time as you sort of figure yourself out or whatever so how would you sort of respond to that question? 
<laughs> well, firstly, that's very kind of um, Nathan and Renee. Um, yeah, I've had a, a bit to do with Nathan. Um, he was always really helpful with my cricket when I was training in Dunedin, so I always appreciated that. Um, but yeah, I, I don't really know. I think, like to be honest, when I was at high school and a bit younger, I was really shy and you know, sport was where I sort of came out of myself and felt really comfortable. And, you know, even, I guess, going to parties when I was at high school and chatting to the boys, I never felt that comfortable. But as soon as I got on the basketball court or the cricket field, um, I was sort of in my element. And, yeah, I, I just think it's always been there just with being shy and probably having a family that, you know, kept me pretty down to earth. Um, you know, my brothers were always there to remind me of what I didn't do and what I could do better. And the same with my sister. Like, they've always kept me really grounded. And I think our whole family's kept each other grounded. And just being from Dunedin, um, you know, everyone's pretty similar in terms of, you know, going about their business and, and not too getting too carried away. So, yeah, I think it has always been there and um, look I guess playing with the boys and having two older brothers and sometimes like, never feeling good enough I've always wanted to work hard to, to prove that I can compete and that's kind of stuck with me regardless of how well I've been doing I've always wanted to do better. And would you say um, and I can familiarise myself clearly not at the level you have but the, the confidence you got out of sport enabled you to be confident away from sport as well in terms of maybe just sort of uh, relinquishing some of that shyness to, to a certain extent? Yeah, 100%. Um, there's no doubt that, um, you know, without the confidence and I guess self-esteem that I got from sport and the positions that it puts you in, you know, in the public eye or having to do speeches, you just grow from those experiences. I'm still not comfortable doing all that stuff, but the more you do it um, and the more you realise that um, it's it's not that bad, you just do it more and get better at it and then you grow in confidence every time you get out of your comfort zone. So, yeah, sport's been a massive part um, giving me that confidence and, you know, sometimes I still get really nervous I've got to go and speak at Otago Girls High School tomorrow and although it's my old school I sort of get a bit anxious before each speech and uh, make sure I prepare so I don't get as nervous. Yeah and I mean I'm going to use this as a great segue what would you say to you know that young shy version of Susie Bates now knowing what you know and you've been on this journey and you've you've been on a journey of self-discovery with yourself and, and learnt and, and sort of grown through the process. What, what would you say to that uh, young, nervous, shy Susie Bates now? Is there, what sort of words of advice would you pass on? Uh, yeah, I think I'd just like, tell her not to worry. I think, um, you know, worry if you were making the right choices and that it was all going to work out in the end and, if you stay true to yourself and what you're passionate about, you're going to be successful. And if I think back to that time of my life, um, you know, female athletes in New Zealand, unless you're a netballer, there wasn't really a career path. So as much as I loved it, I always worried if I was doing the right thing and, and should I be going and studying and doing something else? And, you know, should I be settling down and all those pressures that I think, 
females have faced historically and um you know I just kept trucking along because I loved it so much and it wasn't about getting paid or having a career it was just that's what I was passionate about so um yeah more just you know following your heart and and don't let sort of society you know perhaps push you in a certain direction when you know that that's what you're truly passionate about and what's so exciting now is I don't think those barriers are are there as much because there's so much female sport on TV and successful females in the sporting arena. Now, awesome. I think that's a great answer and some some fantastic insight. And I guess maybe, you know, dovetailing into that, uh, I want to speak to you about when a uh, fellow Olympian and obviously inspirational Kiwi Olympian, uh, Sarah Alma, come to Otago Girls, I think when you're in sort of year nine or whatever it was, um, I guess I'm sort of keen to understand what impact or message you heard from her that day and, and, and whether or not there was any sort of particular actions that followed that speech from, from Sarah. Yeah, she um, she came to Otago Girls when I was year nine and they asked a group of um, young athletes to come along to hear Sarah speak and we sat in a classroom and, you know, she talked about um, – you know, what she'd done in cycling and how she'd got to where she was. And what I remember most about her is just how down to earth she was. And I just remember thinking that was so cool. This um, this woman who had won Olympic medals was just so down to earth and easy to talk to. And probably the thing that stuck with me the most from that was she asked us to do an exercise where we wrote down on a piece of paper where we saw ourselves in 10 years' time. And she sort of said, make sure that even if you don't believe it, write down what you really want to be doing in 10 years' time. And I wrote down playing cricket and basketball for New Zealand, which in year nine, I was like, oh, yeah, right, that would be <laughs> a dream. But um, good good luck. And, well, yeah, it's just it's pretty amazing that at year nine I sort of put that down on paper and obviously there's a lot of things that had to happen in between that but just by having that goal and having someone like her tell you that those things are achievable and hear her story really inspired me and I, I worked hard from there. No, well I love the, the power of vision and the power of having goals and, and maybe in an ironic way your conversation with the girls here tomorrow may seek to replicate that in a different way so there's no doubt that Sarah had a massive uh, impact in that uh, single speech with you so I think that's uh, really cool but um, a question we didn't necessarily talk about beforehand but I'm keen to sort of unpack and it was probably led a little bit by the conversation I had with Nath before the podcast he remarked on you know your, your strong and impressive leadership style um, can you sort of comment on you know the style of leader you've always sort of aspired to be you like uh, did you have a definition or an aspiration that you sort of sought to be as a leader for, for your fellow teammates? Yeah, initially when Gary Stead asked me, I hadn't actually thought about captaining the White Ferns. I'd always played under um, Sarah Sukigawa at the Otago Sparks and I hadn't had many opportunities to captain other than at Otago Girls High School. And in basketball, you may be captain, but there's, you know, other than just, you know, pumping up the team or, you know, giving your best, there's not much you need to do. So I was a little bit nervous and actually a bit reluctant to take on the captaincy because I, I didn't think tactically I was quite ready. But 
I sort of had a bit of a think about how I wanted to go about it and I knew I could learn all that other stuff um, alongside Gary and for me it was just purely leading by example was the best way I knew how to be a leader and that was by you know making sure I was always training hard you know on the field with my performances I wasn't just talking about what we needed to do but actually you know living it and if we needed to you know kick on from starts I wanted to make sure that if I got to 30 I was going to make it a bigger score and it was just simply that that I wanted to lead by example so anything that I was going to ask of the team that I had to make sure I was doing it first. I think there's some fantastic elements in that and, and basically just sort of leading from the front I guess that's a pretty core philosophy within that which I think is a is a simple one but a, an effective one. Um, we've talked a lot about your uh, accolades, uh, achievements and that sort of stuff today but no doubt with that uh, come major challenges or hurdles you've had to sort of uh, work through uh, as a professional athlete. Can you sort of talk about any of those particular challenges and maybe how you've gone about overcoming them? Yeah, like I've been really lucky, touch wood, always touch wood. Um, <laughs> you know, like I haven't had any um, major injury setbacks, which are a massive part of playing international sport. Um, I think Probably just the biggest one is continuing to believe in myself. I think, you know, you play when you're younger and you, you just enjoy it and you happen to be successful or be quite good at it and you don't think too much about it. But as soon as you start making rep teams and performing with that becomes, um, sorry, with that comes expectation and, you know, the expectation to do well every time I step on the cricket field and sometimes you know you have a, a lean run and even just recently playing against Australia in the first two ODIs I got out for less than 10 and it was a massive series for us and I was just so determined to do well that I think you know those two failures really set me back and as you get older as well you, you sometimes question am I still good enough to play at this level even though you know you've been a little bit irrational it, it does happen and I think all throughout my career it's just you know am I good enough and keep wanting to work hard and finding ways to keep believing in yourself because it doesn't matter what anyone else says about you or the, the awards you get it's just always believing in, in yourself when you get on the cricket field and that's something yeah that's continuously been a challenge and and making sure that I um, go out there confident every game. Yeah, well, I think uh, it's ironic that you talk about that for a couple of reasons. Uh, Henry Nichols, who I, I did a podcast with recently, he talked about a similar thing. He also talked about people like Alistair Cook, who I think scored uh, over 12,000 test runs. He commented about the fact that he often had an awful lot of self-doubt or put another way, you know, just, uh, you know, trying to believe in himself uh, consistently. Um, I mean, in reflection, is there anything you do uh, to try and not get too high but not get too low? Because I think seeking to get better and and testing yourself in that regard is a good thing, but sometimes it can become debilitating. So is there anything you can sort of share around, you know, your strategies around not getting too high or too low to sort of stay in that spot where you're, you're sort of you're there to perform and you're not sort of critiquing yourself overly? Yeah, I think I've almost sort of come full circle on all of that. Um, when I first started with the White Ferns, I, 
I was reasonably successful early on and I didn't have any expectations of myself. I was just happy to be there and happy to be playing. And then I think initially just every time I batted for the Sparks or the White Ferns, I just wanted to score runs. And if I scored runs, it was success. And if I didn't, it was a failure. And I got to probably 25 or 26 and just that was just so draining <laughs> playing your yeah. cricket like that just purely on results that you often can't control and you know I'd get emotional occasionally when I didn't score runs in big matches and in particular um, you know I'd been pretty consistent but we played in three World Cup finals um, within the space of probably two or three years so we had a, a 50 over World Cup final against England um, and two 2020 World Cup finals, which I played in all three of them. And I'd scored runs leading up to those games. And then in the final, in all three games, got probably less than 20 and didn't have a match-winning contribution. And I remember sort of having this mentality that I was a choker when it came to those big games. And I got back to um, Dunedin and realised that that wasn't going to be a helpful thought. So actually um, worked with... Uh, mental skills guy in Dunedin around you know that mentality and um, the process of dealing with those nerves on big occasions and I think just going on from that as I've got older you do sometimes almost get more nervous um, because you're probably more aware and the expectations are higher and um, now I really make sure that I spend some time leading up to the game and I've been quite big on um, meditation apps just to you know calm myself down and um, get back into a place where I'm not thinking too much and that's only something in the last two or three years that I've kind of used and especially in big matches but trying to do it consistently. Well, I think that uh, it's cool that you sort of had that self-awareness to address you know what you were labeling to be a a choker, and obviously you then work with someone to help on the mental skills sort of side of it. Um, but yeah, uh, similar to you, I also do meditation, and that was ironically something that was shared with me from uh, Justin Langer, and, and, and I've come to know Justin pretty well. He's a pretty intense, active guy, but the way he sort of put to me back in the day was uh, meditation was a great way to sort of slow the mind down and stop too many rapid thoughts and become a bit more calm and present. And ironically, he picked that, that up from uh, John Wright, uh, the former New Zealand opener. So it's it's cool to hear that that's been beneficial to you further to developing those mental skills to help you get in a, in a headspace to perform, I guess. Yeah, just with batting, that's, I think, you know, when you can be in that space where you're not thinking and just reacting as the ideal state. So I think, um, you know, there's probably a lot of cricketers these days that sort of use some form of meditation and, um, yeah, it's something that um, the white fans have kind of touched on as well. So it's exciting. Yeah. I want to pick up a little bit on emotion. We talked a little bit about emotion before, and I guess although the, the thoughts that you experienced as a teenager when I'm told – uh, you were told by some individual that you had the skills but not the fitness to make it at the highest level in basketball. I guess I want to talk about what was your emotional reaction to that and then how did you respond to that comment? Yeah, that's one of, um, you know, probably one of the stories that I think back on and that was kind of a turning 
point for me in my athletic career. I'd just I'd broken my collarbone playing basketball and sort of just come back and being a really active teenager and then breaking my collarbone and doing pretty much nothing. I did put on quite a bit of weight and then I headed headed along to under eight, eight sorry under eighteen New Zealand basketball trials and. I thought um, at the end of it I'd done pretty well and scored a few points and um, the coach Malcolm Young at the time came up to me and said, look, we're really happy with your skills but you don't have the fitness to compete um, against Australia or an international basketball so you need to go away and work on your fitness and I just remember going to mum after the trial, bawling my eyes out like... (laughs) thinking oh he's told me I'm too fat which he didn't say that at all I just had interpreted it that way and you know was like I'm gonna quit basketball I'm just gonna play cricket like life's not fair poor me um sort of had (laughs) a moment like that and um then I sort of realized I didn't want to quit basketball because I loved it and perhaps there was some merit in what he was saying and I had put on some weight and I'd been injured so I actually joined Moana Pool Gym when I was year 12 and had this trainer that, you know, I'd only played sport. I hadn't really done specific fitness. I'd just gone to training. So going to the gym and doing some biking and running and weights. And honestly, once I started, I've been hooked ever since of um, doing fitness. And, yeah, that was um, probably the best thing that happened to me. And I was actually picked for the New Zealand Secondary School's team after that and Mel came up to me and apologized because he was really embarrassed and <laughs> I had to say no no thank you that was um what I needed to be told so yeah wow so how old were you when he made that comment I was probably 15 or 16 yeah wow I mean what I'm trying to work out is you know at that stage of life for me and I've invested a lot of my own sort of mental skill development all the rest of it, but at that age I can honestly say I would have stayed in that victim mode I would have said poor me not fair who's this guy I'm out. Um, so I guess what I'm trying to understand is, as a 15, 16-year-old, w- was it you that helped form that view that maybe there's some merit there and therefore I can take some action and turn this into a positive thing? Or was that sort of supported by, you know, your, your family unit and stuff like that? I think that's a, a really interesting sort of question. I think um, mum and dad must have played a huge part in that. I can't remember vividly about what they said but mum's always been the really supportive sort of emotional um support system in terms of I could always go to her and have a cry and she could agree and say yeah he's horrible don't listen um dad was always very pragmatic um (laughs) you know sit down and actually have some solutions about um what was said and financially, look, without them, I wouldn't have mm. been able to go and see this trainer at Moana Pool. So mm-hmm. that's a, a massive part of it that we could actually afford to join a gym and mm-hmm. um, pay for this lady to take me one-on-one. So, yeah, I, I do remember it taking a couple of weeks for me or probably more to get out of that um, phase. But I think I just – I love my basketball so much and – I deep down knew that I didn't feel that good on the basketball court. Like my knees were starting to hurt running around because I'd put on a bit of extra weight. So I thought I'd enjoy it more if I did manage to lose the weight. Well, I think that's um, I think it's a great story to sh- to, to tell. Um, people sort of experiencing different 
challenges or, or confrontational moments in, in their career or, or life. So I think uh, well done on turning that into a positive and no doubt that served you well since that moment in time. Um, I want to move to a, a bit more of a philosophical sort of question and I guess I want to understand, you know, what uh, what drives you, what motivates you um, and, and what do you sort of strive to achieve what you've achieved? There's no doubt you've done some great stuff, but at the core of it all, you know, why do you do that? Yeah, like I said, when I was probably younger, it's probably come a bit full circle. And Warren Lee's one of my Sparks coaches. He used to um, really believe that I was um, driven by trying to prove people wrong. And that's probably where it did start, you know, with my brothers and with playing with the boys, trying to prove people that, you know, girls were good enough to compete or, or prove to the basketball coaches that I, I was going to be fit enough. So it was probably a sort of negative motivation that um, drove me initially but got the best out of me. Um, but I think just recently, look, I've always wanted to get the best out of myself and, you know, not settling for just be, making the White Ferns but being the best player I could be in the White Ferns and then not just settling for that but who's the best in the world and, you know, how can I strive to be one of the best batters? Um, and that kind of, you know, kept, there was always something else to strive for and I was never, you know, the finished product. Um, and I think probably most recently it's just how exciting the opportunities are in women's cricket and I'm in this position that I now get paid to do what I love and travel the world and it's sort of being in a position to work hard and make the most of your skills and your body to do what you love for as long as you can and make the most of all the opportunities. That's probably what drives me at the moment is just I want to be a part of it because it's so exciting. Well, I think that's a great answer and I I sort of want to knock on with a a follow-up question to that. What I've sort of taken from that, you've moved from being motivated from proving people wrong to essentially striving to become the best version of yourself and sort of have no regrets within that, sort of push as far as you can. Would you say that the the latter motivator is more energising, sustainable, fulfilling um, than the former one? Or have you noticed any distinct differences in, in, in those motivators? Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a lot less draining mentally, I think. I think, yeah, I think there's just been a real shift in just in my personality and mindset in that, you know, I was always, when I was younger, worried about what other people would think or, um, it, like I said, wanting to prove people wrong. And it was about other people rather than about what I wanted to achieve and how I wanted to go about it. So that's not just been in my cricket, but in everything I've done, it's just that mindset shift of not doing things for other people. Um, I do sometimes look back on that phase where I was sort of out there to prove people wrong and I did get some really good results from it. Um, I think sometimes just that dogged determination, having the bit between your teeth when you're sort of in the fight um, can really help and sometimes I have to dig a little bit deeper these days to to get that fight and um, you know not be so sort of grateful and happy-go-lucky about it. (laughs) Yeah I think you make some insightful comments on that so I think there's some great takeaways for the listeners so uh, that's really cool. Um, I guess I sort of want to 
kind of get out of your own head for a moment and I guess if I was to ask people, you know, that know you really well, that watch your journey and perhaps someone that's had a massive impact on your career like the late uh, Mike uh, Shrimpton, what would they tell me about why Susie Bates has been so successful? So humbleness aside, what would someone like Mike say to me? We have to be completely honest, Mike. Um, Mike was a massive reason for my batting success. Um, he's one of the best coaches I've ever had. And once he got involved in the White Friends program, I just wanted to be around him and pick his brain. So I flew up to Napier and stayed with him and his wife. And we just had training camps because I knew he was going to make me a better player. And mm-hmm. um, that's a pretty special kind of coach. So, yeah, he knows me probably better than um, most people because he just he understood how to get the best out of athletes, and that was getting to know the person and what made them tick. And yeah, look, I think he'd touch on a lot of the stuff that we've talked about. That I was um, so competitive and wanted to compete with the boys and and show you know show New Zealand and show the world that that girls could play cricket and. Um, that was sort of, you know, my determination was to, you know, prove that the white ferns were worth watching and, you know, come along and, and see what the girls can do. And and then I think it's just my competitiveness. Um, you know, we used to have nets and he was just competitive, just as competitive as me and he'd both leg spin for two hours and I just didn't want to get out. I didn't want him to go home that night and be able to, you know, rib me for getting me out three times. So, <laughs> yeah, that's probably w- what he would say and probably that I was slightly crazy, but how much I, I wanted to train and loved cricket, probably very similar to him. He lived and breathed cricket and um, it's just once you sort of get sucked into the game and you meet someone else that's just as passionate, it, it sort of makes it a lot of fun. Well, sounds like some great chemistry and a great partnership, and, and no doubt it's had a massive impact on your career. So I think that's uh, a great answer. Um, so at the ripe old age of 31, um, and someone who is as uh, goal-driven uh, as you are, no doubt, to, and obviously to become the best version of yourself, and, and you talked about goals you set uh, with Sarah, um, looking 10 years into the future. I mean, what goals can you share uh, around what's left to achieve in the game from here, Susie? Yeah, I sort of um, have a a nagging goal that's been with me ever since I've been part of the White Ferns, and that is to win a World Cup. <laughs> um, yes, yeah, that's probably the 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 one goal that you know it drives me every day with the White Ferns, and we've got a twenty twenty World Cup next year in Australia, and then the fifty over World Cup in twenty twenty one in New Zealand um, to look ahead to, and that's kind of. Um, you know, my two years planning of playing and training are based around us performing well at that. Um, but, yeah, look, personally, it's, you know, I just want to enjoy my cricket. I've stepped down from the captaincy because I feel like I can give more back to the younger players and that's the things that sort of drive me these days rather than any sort of personal goals. It's wanting that team to do well and wanting to, leave the white friends in a better place when I've finished and um, there's lots of exciting things around the world with the Big Bash and KSL and when I go into those competitions it's about winning those competitions and contributing in as many matches as I can. Well lots of positive stuff to focus on it seems like the culture and the unity you guys have got uh, 
with the New Zealand cricket at the moment, you guys are a, a great chance to achieve that. So good luck on those endeavours. I'm, I'm sure you'll give it a red hot crack. But uh, I guess I wanted to sort of finish the podcast with a question, kind of where I started in a way. Um, and I guess my last question is: is what message or messages uh, do you want to leave with uh, you know young girls or ladies uh, seeking to chase their own dreams and goals? What could you? What What would you sort of look to to leave as a sort of a, a final sort of message in that regard, Susie? Yeah, that's um, you know probably one of the best things about doing what I do is that you get to be a role model, and I think especially these days with um, you know female sports being on TV. Now girls watch cricket and they want to be the next at least Perry or Sophie Devine and it's not when I was growing up I wanted to be Nathan Astor or yeah. um, the Black Caps because that's all I saw on TV. So I feel like we're in really powerful positions to to show girls that they can do anything, any sport that they want to do. There's a career in it and not to let anyone tell them what direction they, they should be heading in but to follow what they're passionate about and if you work hard um, and you're passionate about what you're doing, you're going to be successful and that's probably, um, yeah, that excites me once I've finished sport is there's just so many opportunities out there for females that, you know, if you follow your heart and, and you're willing to do things slightly differently, there's um, more opportunities out there than you realise. Now, well, I think you've shared some amazing stuff today, so I appreciate that. Um you're clearly a very humble, hardworking, uh, competitive individual, and, and obviously that that that's culminated in what you've achieved today. So I'm certainly very grateful that you've taken the time to uh, to share some of those uh, key aspects that's been pivotal to your journey, uh, Susie. So thanks very much for that. Uh, all the very best for the goals that are in front of you. But um, yeah, I really appreciate the inspirational podcast. No worries, thanks, Sean. It's been nice just to chat and <laughs> we look back on that stuff and. Yeah, it's um, it's been a it's been a cool journey. So no, thanks. I really appreciate that you've wanted to speak to me, and hopefully, um, you know, the listeners enjoy it. And yeah, I might see you around, and you're in Brisbane. Um, we haven't played there that much, but it'll be good to catch up, and hopefully, you can come watch some cricket. Absolutely, love to. Thanks again, Susie. No worries. Thanks, guys. Thanks again for listening to us today. Uh, Don't forget to rate and review and share that. And I'm really looking forward to sharing our future podcasts. Thanks again. Thanks again.